Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, so as promised, here is my interview with one of New Zealand's most well-known and respected investigative journalist, Melanie Reid. We'll be speaking about her career, undercover work in Gloria Vale, the Peter Ellis and David Bain case, and of course, Lockie's case. And as you know, she'll be releasing her long-form investigative podcast, The Boy on the Water, very soon. But what you can do right now is search the podcast, The Boy on the Water, on any platform and you'll find a short trailer which has just been released to coincide with this interview. Give the trailer a listen, then hit the follow button, and you'll be notified as soon as episode one is released. It's that easy, and it's going to be worth it from what I understand. Okay, great, that's it from me. Let's get into the interview. I think it's quite, it's quite good, I think, given everything that sort of happened that we're friendly and chatting and you know i don't want to say i like being friendly Mm. yeah why wouldn't we be friendly yeah i know because remember what did you what uh, did you say to me when we first spoke (laughs) i think um something along the lines of you know that that yeah you gave me a little bit of a sort of telling off but you also said um you know like you try to be the nice person in this industry that's full of sometimes not so nice people well i don't know if it was that i think it's just like there's there's Sometimes there doesn't seem to be a lot of generosity Mm. in the industry towards each other, and I think it would be better if there was. Mm. Yeah. Because I think we could work in together a little bit better. But, you know. Mm. Yeah. That's just my take after 30 years in the media. So, yeah, why don't you tell me um, how did you start your career? I started my career at journalism school in 1986. I came from Queenstown and um, I was a horse riding girl and I didn't really want to leave the horses. So I went and worked for the Government Tourist Bureau. Then I took on the Queenstown Council and I ran this massive campaign called Towards Rational Development in Queenstown. And they were going to put 90 industrial sites on that beautiful, in that beautiful gorge between Queenstown and Arthur's Point going up to Coronet Peak. And so I ran this massive campaign. We pulled all the pegs out at night time. Probably shouldn't be mentioning that. I was like a little naughty little activist. And somehow I sort of engaged the whole town. And because I was like really young at the time, like I was like 18 or 17 even, I was like um, 17 or 18, that it became like this national news story that 
this young kid in Queenstown was taking on these, you know, big kahunas and, uh, you know, big developers and stuff. And so it ended up being like all over the news. It was a network story and it was like on the radio. And then it was just like, I was like, I want to be a journalist because you can change things because we stopped this massive development. Oh, you did well. Yes, we did. So you, you, and were so, the, you were the Greta Thunberg of your time. I was. And then, um, so then I went to journalism school in 1986. There you go. And, um, yeah, so that's how it all started. And then I and, went into television. And I was going to say, so did, did sort of, um, did the dream come to fruition? Like, did you find that you were able to change things as you thought you might have been able to? Or was that a naive yes. belief of it? No, it's not. That's no, never naive belief. Do you know what I mean? You've just got to believe, don't you? Mm. Because otherwise you just give up. So I've spent my whole life believing. Yeah. That's why I'm still a journalist and I didn't go to PR, public relations. You know, that's why I'm doing That's where a lot of people that studied journalism ended up. They ended up in public relations and um, they've got swimming pools and I haven't. <laughs> but you're out there fighting a the good fight. Well, I like to think I am anyway. And so then you got into television. So tell me about that side of things. Well, television was kind of for private school girls back then. And everyone had quite affected, you know, English accents. And we all had, everyone had sort of coral, you know, lipstick and blonde bobs. And they were quite private school, schoolish types. Yeah. And, um, I did journalism school and then I went and worked in the film industry and I worked on that movie Willow with Ron Howard uh-huh. and I did all the stunt riding for the horse riding girl. And then a friend of mine rang me and said, oh, they're taking on these interns at TVNZ. And I said, I want to be one of those. I want to go and do that. And so I phoned up and the internship had finished. It was all over. It was like, no, we're taking on six people and they've all been picked. It's all been signed, sealed and delivered and pissed off, basically. So I flew to Auckland and I didn't know anything about television apart from they wore hairspray. And I stayed (laughs) with this friend of mine who basically lived in a shack on the side of Point Shed Beach, got on a bus, stopped at the Three Lamps pub and – um, having bought hairspray and filled my hair up with hairspray and went and sat at the outside the head of news's office until I got the job. Really? And he took me on. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> cheeky. I've always been a little bit cheeky maybe. Yeah. I, I, it almost sounds – I'm surprised you didn't end up with Greenpeace or something. Oh, no. You know, I p- picketing you some, know. some oil, oil field somewhere. No, it wasn't really that. You know, it wasn't. I wasn't sort of like an environmental. It wasn't. It was just like an the Queenstown activism, if I can call it that, was just the most irrational thing that you could even even imagine. Like, if you look back on it, you say, "Oh my god, what sort of brain dead person would decide to put an industrial site on public display in you know one of the most beautiful parts of you know parts of the world really queenstown mm-hmm. in, yeah. and beautiful parts of new zealand so i wasn't i wasn't really an activist i just sort of liked the idea that i might have been once yeah yeah for sure and, and then when you ended up in tv how did you find that at first and sort of how quickly did you sort of rise through you know the ranks 
I didn't really rise very quickly, actually. I ended up in regional news in Christchurch for TVNZ, and I wasn't really very good at it. Uh, I was very good at, at getting people to talk to me. I was very good at doing interviews, and I was very good at kind of filming, but I wasn't very good at writing the scripts. I'm a bit dyslexic. I always say that the only thing I can spell is my name. <laughs> and so it was really difficult. And also I was sort of slightly – I was a little bit bogan, I think, for TV. <laughs> they were all a bit posh, really, and – and I wasn't – I remember that the other thing, the first day that I went to my training course, I'd spent $200.1987 on a pair of trousers. And I just thought this was like – it was like, you know, these days spending like 1200 or something. And I just thought I was so fancy, honestly. And then the tutor looked at me and she said, well, you know, of course, the way that you're dressed, that you, you, you wouldn't actually – be able to go out on an interview and I was just horrified <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting over it I've never forgotten that part oh that, yeah that's funny. anyway and then but I very quickly actually I didn't I very quickly went to tv3 so I went to I went to tv3 and set up the South Island office with Mark Jennings in 1989 and so I only lasted at TVNZ for about you know a, a year maybe because I kind of wanted to be I wanted to be doing long format current affairs, which, mm. you know, takes about 20 years to do in those days to get to doing long format current affairs. And I was in regional news, so I had this vision if I went to TV3, it would happen a lot faster, and it did. Well, they were the sort of the new kid on the block, weren't they? Um, they sure were, yeah. It was pretty interesting in those early days, I can tell you. Um, and so, sort of the, the most famous case, I suppose, you're known for, um, they're known as Gloria Vale now, but um, what were they called at that time? Was it the Cooper? The Cooper rights. Yeah. So, so yeah, tell me yeah. about that and, and what happened there. Well, the Cooper rights were this uh, community, some would say cult, and they used to live out of Christchurch and they were run by this uh, man called Neville, Neville Cooper. And then they moved to uh, Lake Halpity on the West Coast, and that was kind of like a very um, isolated area. And they were a community that, uh, well, there's a, a kind of a lot of controversy around them. They were, they, they basically lived a really isolated life in the community, and they didn't really know the names of the days of the week. They had no outside contact. They believed that the world outside was riddled with evil. And anyway, they had five – I think when I went in there, there was 150 people in the community. And there, his family – he had a family of about 10 children, and five of them were in the community and five of them were out. Now, I might not have those those yeah, numbers yeah, actually quite – it was actually 1993, so I was quite it's been a while. Yeah. So forgive me. <laughs> Um, and so what happened is there was all sorts of allegations of sexual abuse. There was um, people were really broken that had come out. I sort of I was quite young, but I still hadn't experienced anything quite like it. Like how traumatized uh, people that had been in the community were, particularly his sons. And then um, one of his sons committed suicide. And I was quite friendly with him, and I just thought, you know what? It's like 
I said, what the hell is going on in there that these people are so damaged? Like something's really full on going on. So either I can sort of stand on the lake and sort of and sort of gesture over my, you know, left shoulder, this is where the community is, you know, as the mist rises over the lake mm. and go, and this is what they're doing, or I can go in there. So I decided in all my wisdom or something not so wise probably, that I was going to go undercover into the community. So I learned to be a um, how to milk cows. I used to milk cows every day before work. <laughs> and, and then I – and that was quite, you know, interesting in itself. But um, so what they had at the Cooperites is they had what's called a herringbone floating cow shed. It was the only one in the South Island – and it, and it rolled, you know, it wasn't a square shed. It was like the it rolled around, you know, it was a cir- mm. circular shed. So I rang them. I waited until the Lincoln um, Agricultural College was having its school holidays. And I rang them and asked them if I could come to do work experience because I wanted to come to their um, place oh. because they had a floating here in Bone Cow shed. Clever. And then I went to, I got... Tr- I got dropped off by my boss, do you mind, in Greymouth. I mean, imagine doing that these days. They'd be like, oh, my God, we'd be, he'd be locked up. And I hitchhiked. I hitchhiked all the way up to there, up to where they were. And Neville Cooper and his 16-year-old wife came and picked me up. And I went into the community for, I think, 10 days. Wow. And I had a um, video camera. Did you? And so I filmed it. Yeah, I had fin- so I filmed it all and I made a story about what it was like in there. Yeah, I'll have to. I, I've got to say, I haven't actually seen it. Is there somewhere that I can track that down and listeners can can find that? Um, who, who I'll is try TV3 and three or something. Is it? Yeah, but I, t- I think they've buried it. Like many of my stories, mm. can't really find them. But I think there's um, if you look on newsroom and just put Melanie Reid, Gloria Vale or Cooperites in the newsroom.co.nz search engine, then there is a bit of a clip because I was wearing the full like white headscarf (laughs) and the blue dress and I was kind of all in. And so it was very interesting. So did they, when you got there, sorry, did did they say, hey, you have to wear this or did you sort of know in advance, right, I need to get this stuff? No, I think that it was really awkward because – what Neville Cooper had, um, you know, his theory was that basically if everybody looks the same, then there's no kind of jealousy or everyone, if everyone's dressed the same, then it stops the kind of evils of vanity. Mm. So it yeah, wasn't can, very yeah. appropriate that I turned up, you know, in a pair of trousers <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you know, because it's kind of not what women wore either. Mm. Yeah. And so it was just, I think it was suggested, and I and I agreed. Yeah, you would have been a. I mean, your normal personality would have been a square peg in a round hole in terms of the people that would have been in there and how they lived their life. I could imagine it must have been quite well, shocking for you. Not really. Oh, really? Um, no, because I sort of come from quite a well, not a farming background, but a kind of I'd say a rural background. So I. You know, we all kind of grew up like having to, you know, we all grew up on horses and we 
did a lot of veg. You know, we we had big vegetable gardens and we had to mow everybody's lawns. We we had to do all the. We came from. I came from quite a big family, so we all had jobs. So you know, we knew we were quite practical, yeah. and so this was just like being practical on a massive scale. Like there was so many tea towels to fold and there was, um, you know, lots and lots of uh, work to do, lots of cooking. I'd cooked in shearing sheds when I'd been younger. And so, and also I didn't, I sort of don't mind the concept of community and commune living. Now you're going to go, oh my gosh, she's a mad hippie. No, no, but I, 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 I kind of like the idea, I think there's a lot of merits to it. I agree. So I yeah. could see the good in it. Mm. Yeah, that, that's the thing. And, you know, when you were saying before about, you know, if people dress the same, and again, I'm not saying this is what we should do, but the concept of sort of, <laughs> the concept of reducing that vanity, which we see in our society is just rampant nowadays. You know, there's little elements. We could run a community, Brian. <laughs> we could start a community. <laughs> yeah. But I, but mean, I yeah. think there are good things about these places, and mm. I think I could see the good mm. in them. Yeah, so, it so wasn't what did just you, the yeah. bad. So what was, yeah, so what what was your sort of um, outlook after you got in there, and what did you find? Was it what everyone well, I thought? Felt, I felt pretty bad that I was sort of, bullshitting and, and but I kind of saw it as like insincerity for the sake of the truth and I was very conscious of the Cooper boys that were outside of the community and the damage to the kids and just like the sort of the, the following of Neville Cooper was just so singular that basically they they would leave their kids and their husbands and they want to have them outside because it's all about what's happening on the inside. Mm. So I spent quite a lot of time with him and uh, I I used to have to sit next to him every meal time where he had the microphone and would talk about the evils of the world. And so but what I what I understood was that they had created very much a kind of them and us situation like yeah. the kids didn't know the difference be- between twenty dollars and twenty cents like they didn't know they asked me you know what do you call like they didn't know monday tuesday wednesday they had it first day second day third day and so there was just things like those wow. types of things that were just like well these people are actually living on a different planet far out yeah it was interesting did you find um did you find that after that sort of 10 days, did did you make any sort of friendships in, in there and sort of see some of the good in the people there? Oh, I really like the people there. Like, I saw lots of good. Mm. And I had quite a good time. <laughs> yeah. I know that sounds – I mean, I didn't have a bad time. Mm. But I I think that it's like when you're in it, it was it was honestly, in a way, it was like being on a ginormous school camp. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I was an adult. And, and, and basically I could see that they were being indoctrinated. Like there was a kind of definitely everyone was uh, thinking – Yes, one way they mm. they were worshiping their leader. Yeah, and yeah. I knew a little bit much about the leader before I went in there to be to kind of fall for that. Mm. But it was very interesting in seeing how these types of guru types operate because mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Now that's that's mm. interesting. Um, oh yeah, I mean I have to do a bit more research into that. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. I will have to look into it that. Was, more. You have to look about that. It was a very long time ago. I could, can tell could, you could that. Be, could be a podcast in that. There could be. You yeah. never know. And, and speaking I, about, hopefully, I won't be doing. <laughs> speaking about podcasts, I wanted to quickly talk about another podcast of yours. Actually, your first podcast that. My um, only podcast. Yes. Apart from first. I have got a new one, yes, as you know. But, which we will talk but, about. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so tell me about – so I listened to the Peter Ellis podcast, which is called Peter Ellis, The Crash Case and Me, I think, um, and it documents your um, story of interviewing Peter during the time of his trial, I believe. And it's, right. it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. I, I it, You know, I found myself feeling sick about – you know, sometimes the society we live in and how people can come to just bizarre conclusions. It's almost like that group hysteria. Um, yeah. T- yeah. T- tell me about, about that case. Um, just briefly. Wow. I'm yeah. never brief as you know, but <laughs> I can't be, I'm not very brief when it comes to Peter Ellis, Yeah. but um, well, so it was just to kind of familiarize you with it. Mm. It was, um, 1990, you know, it was the early 90s, and um, there were, I think, 60 charges initially um, involving 20 children charged with um, child abuse. A depositions hearing, which was a pre-trial hearing, which was the only one that was long, was the Rainbow Warrior trial. Now I'm really showing my age, but it was this. There was actually a man, Peter Ellis, and there was another um, four women, they were charged with child abuse at the Christchurch Civic Crash. So Civic Crash, it was run by the council. And so it was just this most extraordinary time where this satanic panic Mm. idea was sweeping the world that, and it was sort of like all men, a potential rapist type of thinking that children were being abused right in front of our eyes. It was everywhere. Every second person was a pedophile. It was that kind of uh, phenomenon that was sweeping the world. And, of course, it landed in Christchurch and it landed at the forefront of uh, the house of or at the crash. Mm. And Peter Ellis, who was quite fashionable then because this was quite a liberal, you know, uh, crash, Peter Ellis was a, you know, code word for gay in mm. those days was flamboyant. So he was a flamboyant, quite wild gay man that had kind of more eyeliner and had long fingernails and was quite into shocking you. And he was like more kind of like kid than the kids, you know. He mm. was like kind of magical. He's out there I remember in the sandpit playing with them. He was. And so he was like, right, we're going to the monkey puzzle tree and we're going to spend all day trying to find the monkey and then we're going to try and find the puzzle. And so he was just, like, um, splendid with the children. So he got nailed absolutely by this idea that he'd abused all these children. It was really depressing, honestly. And just to to explain a little bit for the listeners, so, yeah, so he – it starts off as just – a couple sort of um, accusations that then more or less there's a police, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a detective who just took this and ran with it. And it's the classic situation of re-interviewing children again and again and again until they get the answer that they want. And it's, and eventually there ends up being, is it dozens of kids that end up saying things that they end up recanting later on. And 
Um, but you know, people really, it's worth a listen. Uh, it's a, it's a great podcast. I found it, it's, you know, it's very sad, um, in the end. Um, unfortunately it's not sort of a happy, a, a happy story in the end really, is it? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No, it's, I mean, I think that I just, actually cried the whole way through making it. So I think that I was in tears for about, that, oh, you know, yeah. six months when I was making it. But what happened with that story is that when I was quite, you know, when I talked to you about going to TV3, mm. one of the first big stories I did was the Peter Ellis story. And so he was in court and I used to go to his house and we used to drink sherry and we used to smoke cigarettes. And I was always trying to get him to do an interview. And, when, and then it was so bad in those days that when he finally agreed to it, I used to take him on sun, on Sundays and we almost used to put a blanket over his head so no one saw us with him or no one saw him. We used to sneak him into these kind of like sad motels on the outskirts of Christchurch and we used to do these interviews. So that's what's extraordinary about the story mm. is that we have got the whole, all the interviews are going on as the case is going on. Mm. So it's like, it's like, it's like, we're back in the 90s. You can tell by my hair, though. But we're back in the 90s and my earrings <laughs> and my padded shoulders. Oh, I'll, no. I'll add there as well that there is actually <laughs> a, a, um, a series that runs parallel to the podcast or the podcast runs parallel to the series. So you can actually watch it as well. Yeah. So, But what, what, I, what I meant was that the reason it's kind of really interesting is because it's like happening in real time, mm. but it's the 90s. And so... What had happened is that when I was working at TV3, you know, years, about 20 years later, they were, you know, moving our offices or something, and they ch and I watched them chuck all my tapes into this great big dumpster bin. I nearly had a complete breakdown, and I went, it felt so personal to me that they were doing this because they were all the, the David Bain tapes, and not, obviously that's another big case in New Zealand, but there was a David Bain case. It was all the Peter Ellis tapes. So I got all of these tapes and I took them all home and they'd been in my garage for about, I don't know, been, I don't know, it's it a miracle that we could even retrieve them. But I'd kind of, it was one of the few times I've been happy that I'm a bit of a hoarder because I took them all and said, right, there's no way they're going to the dump. So that's how come I had the footage. Yeah, and I think and it all the so unique. it's so unique having that. And that's, I think that's what part, part of what makes it such a genuine story to listen to because you know you're jumping from current narration and then you've got 
you know, like actual tapes, like actual audio from the time. And, you know, it's a little bit crackly and, you know, as these things are. And I just think it's, yeah, no, I loved it. Loved every minute. So definitely worth going and looking that up. It's called, yeah, Peter Ellis, The Crash Case and Me. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So um, you mentioned the David Bain case there. Um, we won't go into too much, too much <laughs> detail because this is another one of those. But, you, you know, you did did work on the David Bain case as well. Like, geez, you've you've worked some big cases in your career. Yeah, so that was obviously, it was kind of June 1994, I remember it because it was my brother's birthday, and um, there were, you know, a couple and three of their four children found dead in a house in Dunedin. The only person that was alive was one of the sons. And so, yeah, that's a very, that's that been a very big case in New Zealand, mm. the Bain case, and obviously there was a... It's it's really court I mean, of appeal retrials. It's the big, it's the biggest case probably. I mean, it's probably the most well known case in New Zealand. There is actually a it was one of the first podcasts I listened to actually Black Hands, which you know, look at me, I'm supporting mm. all these other podcasts. But it's um, it's it's worth- that's because you're generous, Ryan. It's good <laughs> to be. <laughs> Do you not know? Generosity breeds generosity. That's what my mother taught me. So there you go. Yeah, well, try and live by that. But it's worth listening to. Um, you know, I, it was when I went through law school, we spent a little bit of time on it. And, um, you know, there was yeah, – I'll reserve my opinion on, on what I think happened. Um, and But, you know, it was in law school, everyone thought a particular thing. Um, but, you know, there were certainly some interesting pieces of evidence. And the one thing that always struck me is – odd was the note on the computer which said you were the only one who deserved to live yeah it was something i i don't know it always stuck out to me yes it's very mysterious all right mm. and it's um it's a there's a lot of levels and layers depending on uh which perspective that you're listening to mm. because um uh, there's there's been quite a few books written as well which kind of uh are quite different to like the black hands mm. oh right yeah the black yeah. hands podcast yeah well, and, and so yeah. there's, there's lots of different aspects of the case um that you kind of hadn't really thought of or mm. that, that that gets sort of unpacked and dissected and is it joe Karam that that has always yeah. been, been his supporter yeah he has a book that's been out for a long time well, he's got about three i think oh, is it yeah three? Oh, okay and that yeah. was always the thing I thought is I sort of, on the surface, I don't know Joe, but I sort of could respect him. And I thought, well, if he's in his corner all this time, then, you know, but um, yeah. Anyway, we, you could talk for hours on that case. Um, but yeah, we could. Yeah, but why don't we get on to the reason we're talking today, which is um, Lachlan's case. Uh, and yes. And everyone that's listening to this now, they've obviously listened to my episodes already, so they know the gist of the case. Um, you know, you've sort of really been sort of the driver of that case. Um, you know, yeah. what, what was it that made you sort of take it on and, and, and sort of become that person? Well, it's quite interesting for me because I don't normally do stories like this in that, and when I say stories like this, I mean, there's a drowning in a small town in Gore, case closed, you know? Mm. And so it's not the sort of thing that I would go, right, I'm just going to go and try and totally unpick what happened and how it – but what did happen is that Paul Jones, bless him, decided that he wanted me and only me as the journalist to come and um, 
look into the case. Oh, wow. Because I think I had a kind of history, I suppose, of doing quite big investigations. And some of those cases, like the Bain case, we got we got that back to the Court of Appeal. Peter Ellis, we all our journalism got that back to the Court of Appeal. So we've had we've got a history, our team, of actually making a um, difference. Well, you know, having a journalism that actually has an effect. I guess mm. we don't sort of we just don't do it for entertainment, yeah. if you like. So yeah. it's like this, if we're going to do it, we're going to kind of. Yeah. go deep and get into it and fortunately for me I get the time and space to do that so he honestly Paul Jones was like having a stalker he rang me and he rang me some more and he rang me some more and he rang me some more and he kept ringing me but of course my family's all down south and so I'm often in the South Island and also um, unlike a lot of people I'm very fond of gore I quite like I remember it when I was a little girl and as a kid and so you know it was like it used to be like when I was young, I, when I was very young, we used to live not that far from Gore in a place called Tapanui, and we used to go to, and you know it was like the as I said it was like my New York it was like the you know H and J Smith was like you know the shopping mecca of the world really, and so I've, I was kind of familiar to me. Also, I think that they knew a little bit about me because I've sort of played it, you know, ridden horses down there and we played hockey down there. So people sort of, there's a few people around town that said, oh, you should bring out Maori. Anyway, so he started ringing me and then I was on another story. So I thought, I'm just going to actually go and see this guy to get him off my back. Mm. And um, I'd read the police file and when you read the police file, it was like, you know, actually, if you just read the police file and you don't walk out there or anything, you can sort of go, oh, I don't reckon there's much in this mm. because it's quite convincing mm. that he drowned, Yeah, you know. And so, anyway, I'm probably kind of talking uh, too long on this, but no, essentially no, no. I went to Gore. It was this cold day. It was so cold, I think I was blue from the inside out and I was even though I'm from you know I'm spent quite a bit of time it was that cold I remember it and we did this walk I met Paulie came zooming out with Karen Maguire who's a friend and support person the corner of Salford Street you know Raw was in a in a in a, in a um uh courier van a red courier van and it was just like he was sort of slightly manic and we did this walk and I was just like I don't think so. You know, this is a bit weird. And then and then I started just to – I went through the file again and through the file again and again. And then I went – in 2020, I went and did the story saying, hey, look, this case is closed, but this boy walked all this way and there was no marks on his feet. The police investigation's a debacle. You know, um, there's no timelines. The interviews are half done. Um, the pathology looks wonky. So I did that, and then we got the case reopened after that. Well, I'm not saying we did, but... Oh, but I, think, I think you did. Well, I mean, that's it's, very it's generous of you. But I think as a result of that, there was that story and people pushing from other areas probably as well. So the case was reopened, and we thought, great, there's going to be a reinvestigation. And so that reinvestigation went on and on and on and whatever. It took about a year or so. And then we found out that it was just like, same old, same old. There was no change. Yeah. So I sort of picked it all up again. Mm. And um, that was kind of last year. I picked it all up again and started to really sort of go through it quite forensically. And I I realised that um, 
I'd missed something. And that was the initial pathology report, which was done by Dr. Masson in Vicargill after Lockie died. His the, the postmortem report said the lungs were unremarkable. Mm. Now I'd missed this one point and I thought, hang on, how can his lungs be unremarkable? If he drowned, surely his lungs wouldn't be unremarkable. That's just my layperson. Mm. Rang a few people. Anyway, so what happened is we spent a great part of last year trying to get um, body sample slides from the coroner, because by now this case was with the coroner, to make a determination of death of how Lockie died. I can explain that in a minute. But anyway, what happened is we spent a long time, we engaged a, you know, the forensic unit in, um, a forensic unit in Christchurch and we got all these people to help us and we got, we got these slides and we got all the autopsy reports, everything we could get our hands on and we sent them off to be independently assessed in the UK by a, a kind of world-renowned specialist in suspicious deaths. Yeah. And he basically does a, report which i think you know about right mm. yeah and we and, we, and we, we don't need to give too much away as well because there will be a podcast covering it but you know obviously oh. obviously that you know obviously that, that um, oh that's right that, i've got a podcast i've got to make yeah. <laughs> but you know that report obviously came back at odds with you know the original report i mean well the original report initially gave the cause as drowning but really no, there was no reason for that for that determination was there in the initial report? Well, as I found out, that drowning is quite a hard diagnosis. It's like a process of elimination. And basically, um, there kind of was not the pathological evidence to support the diagnosis of drowning is the quote. Mm. And that's not just from one pathologist, it's from more than one. So, so, so now what we had, which was a bit of a bombshell for us, which was done earlier this year, was that, hey, you, the, the diagnosis of drowning is unsafe. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we'll leave that bit there. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, that – and that's that's going to be obviously a key part of, of your podcast, which I can't wait to hear. Sure. So, I mean, I guess when it comes down to Lachlan's case is that – I mean, there are obviously so many elements to this. You know, and is that the sort of the main thing that sticks out to you as the key piece? No. It's not. <laughs> there's so many pieces, I think. I mean, and some of them that you've, you know, there's some really obvious ones that you've traversed mm. and there's some that you think are obvious but then they're not obvious when you actually mm. dig into them a bit more. But, you know, I think there's some very, there's some very obvious red flags if we can call them red you know if we can call them that just for the for convenience but and you know the autopsy is one of them but you know found face up you know the the some of the um just really big chunks of time that are missing in mm. the um interviews the police witness interviews um cell phones pinging in Mm. East Gore when people are meant to be in West Gore, mm. um, yeah, it's just like a debacle really, mm. and and so it's like there's that saying you know absence of evidence or evidence of absence like it is a shonky job you know mm. that's been done. I, I mean, 
we're involved with someone who's looking at the police investigation. They've called it pathetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've called it. A, I've called it a debacle. They've called it pathetic. Mm. And, and I mean, I suppose. How do you feel? I mean, you know, people. You know, they obviously have their reasons, but police transparency in their investigation. Do you think that they could be more transparent as to how they came to sort of their decision, or? Do you understand the reasons behind that? You know, they sort no, of... it's like, it's honestly, when you have a child that's found in a sewage pond mm. and 1.2 k's from where he lives and mm. you've got a kind of 14-year-old witness that says they think they saw him, mm. And he ran, I mean, you've just got to do the job. You've got to do the proper job. You've got to have the, you've got to have a forensic pathologist. You've got to interview people, not, not wait a month to interview people. Mm. And, and I suppose that's the thing too, to be clear here is that, you know, I'll say our job, I'm not really a journalist, but you know, the job here is to remain impartial. And really it's just about trying to say, look, like, you just need to follow all the right steps, and that's what this is about. It's about making sure that these things are looked at that never were and should have been in the first place. Yeah. I mean, like, when we trained as journalists, we, we had to read detective manuals. Hmm. I don't think they do that now, but we used to have to read the manuals, so you actually know what needs to happen. And there's some really basic things that need to happen. You need to secure the scene hmm. for a start off. You know, you need to then do fingerprinting, tire tracks, all of that. Oh, none of this is done because they've just gone, hey, it was a drowning. And look, we don't know that it absolutely wasn't a drowning, but it's looking, the more you get involved in it, the less likely it looks like it was just a drowning. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's the thing is it's just, yeah, I mean, no one's saying at this point that it's definitely foul play, but it's just saying that, look, it's starting to look worse and worse. Um, that, that's how I felt with it anyway. I mean, when you start bringing all the sort of circumstantial stuff in as well, it's just every little bit, it's just sort of a, another little nail kind of thing. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so just moving on, um, the coroner's report is expected to be released sometime soon. I thought it would actually be out by now. Do you Have you had any word on that? Sometime soon. Who told you sometimes soon? Well, I, sometimes soon could be like, you know, next year. Well, because I did an Official Information Act request when I first started looking at mm -hmm. it, and um, I got a letter back from the coroner saying that they didn't want to comment, but I can't remember if it said that there was going to be something soon or um, I'd have to go back and look, but, yeah, something soon could be. If, if something soon happened with the coroner, it would be the first time. Because it's never soon, ever. <laughs> never, ever seems to be soon. Or am I, hey, I might be just impatient. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably like, I mean, all journalists have probably got that little bit of impatience, don't they? Well, I just think that, you know, some of these cases, if you look at them, they've been with the coroner for a couple of years. And what what happens with uh, with with these cases, just, so, just for your listeners, is that, you know, there's a police investigation that found that he um, he drowned. His, he died from drowning. There's a reinvestigation, which um, my understanding is that they still 
can't say that anyone's culpable. They don't know how he got out there. So they're no further ahead. And some people would say that their reinvestigation just saves their ass on their first investigation, which is a bit rude. But that's um, I'm quoting somebody else here. So so it was just an exercise, a futile exercise in in um, making sure that they ticked all the boxes that looked like they were doing a reinvestigation. So then what happens is the case is then handed back to the coroner, and the coroner then determines you know cause of death. The coroner, I suspect, might say that the cause of death is undetermined. Mm. We can't say essentially yeah. is what it means and um so and so for for some of us who, who work in this area a lot we get very frustrated and it feels like it's thrown into a corner into a dusty old corner yeah and it's left there for years until everyone forgets about That's it what I, that was going to be the next thing i was going to say is that the reality is that over time, people do forget about things and they get they move on to something else. And if it does take a couple of years, then whatever that that report says, people are going to be less inclined to care. Sadly, um, yeah. And and people like Paul Jones just go, you know, they just get further, they get more and more distressed mm. as things take longer. And we do too because it's like it means that it gives the police somewhere, you know, they've they've got a reason. Or legally, they can go. Well, we can't talk about it because it's with um, with the coroner, mm. you know. And so you just sit back and go. But there is a chance that the coroner could call an in. You know, we could, mm. they could have a full inquest and mm. call people. Do you think Paul will ever accept anything other than than his current belief? He, he's so invested into into this side of it. I think that he will accept. I think. He, what Paul does not accept that his son walked out there and drowned. Yeah. That's what he doesn't accept. Mm. And I, I've got to say that when I went out there in person, and it, it, it blew me away, to be honest. You've actually got to go out there, haven't you? You, you really to, do, um, yeah. to, to actually, because, you know, you sort of, you've got to walk 1.2 k's over, you know, way, way down there in those fences and, it's just you you know when they say it, you've got you've actually got to do it to kind of understand mm. it yeah yeah so let's just um quickly talk about release date so i know that there's no set release date right now but you're going to have a trailer did you, ta- did you hear me um did you hear me take a really big deep breath then <laughs> <laughs> that was a great big oh release date oh yeah, it yeah. will be sometime in June, but we've kind of worked in a pretty busy mm. newsroom, and there's kind of other things going on as well, mm. and so um, we're trying to get it up in um, June. But yes, we will have a promo, yeah. and we'll be able to let you know as soon as it's on. I mean, I would like to, but maybe we're looking about the third week of June. Yeah. So, so right now, if you're listening to this when it releases. Hopefully, fingers crossed, you should be able to go on whatever platform you want, type The Boy in the Water, and there should be a promo trailer. Go there, click on the follow button, um, listen to the trailer, and then when that first episode does come out, you'll get notified. So um, that would be my advice right now, and hopefully that's the way it all pans out. And um, yeah, I know that everyone's very keen to hear the podcast, Mel. Thank you. Well, I hope they like it. I don't know if "likes" the right word though for this podcast, is it? Mm, I, I hope I they find it interesting. Yeah, I think um, I think I think it certainly is interesting, um, without a doubt. Thanks so much for your time today, Mel. 
pleasure. And uh, yeah, I will um, chat to you soon and look forward to hearing the podcast. Okay, go well. Okay, Bye. Brilliant.